Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, where we aspire to have real conversations, conversations that are designed to shine a light on what it takes to follow your different in your life, business, and of course, marketing. On this episode, the incredible Lee Hartley Carter and a conversation about the power of language and the art of persuasion. Uh, also, I want to say off the top, thank you so much for making us a top 25 overall uh, Apple podcast charting podcast. Uh, we started this journey two and a half years ago, and if you had told me uh, we would become one of the top 200 podcasts in the United States of America, candidly, I would have told you that was not possible. So I want to thank you for sharing the show, and most importantly, I want to thank you for your time. It's great hanging out. Now, my friends at Splunk, who are the leaders in big data, want you to know that legendary businesses today, more than ever, are digital businesses, and data is the foundation of digital business. And Splunk brings data to every question, every decision, and most importantly, every action. Check out Splunk.com today and tell them Lockhead sent you. That's S-P-L-U-N-K.com. I also want to tell you about my good friends at Oracle NetSuite. They want to help you turbocharge the growth of your business. Go to netsuite.com slash different, and there you'll be able to set up a free growth review with an expert in your industry. Check out netsuite.com slash different. Now, Lee Hartley Carter. She's the president of Melansky and Partners, and they focus on communications and language strategy and have a background in both business and politics. Um, the title of her new book is Persuasion, Convincing Others When Facts Don't Seem to Matter. And we have a riveting conversation about why uh, languaging matters with a true languaging master. And even if you're not in business or in marketing, you're going to learn a ton on this uh, episode on how language shapes everything in our lives. You may also enjoy the part of the conversation where Lee breaks down how to communicate in a crisis. Go to Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D.com for the show notes for this episode and key takeaways and more on Lee's awesome new book. Now, hey-ho, let's go. I never even knew that there could be a job that was all about words and messaging when I was younger, but I was always obsessed with words. I think they're amazing, amazing tools that can really have an impact. And uh, sometimes we don't spend enough time thinking about them before we, we use them. <laughs> so here's what I'm fascinated to ask you. If you sort of believe that um, the best way to learn things is to have uh, a white belt mind, right? So in that mm -hmm. context, tell me what is language? Gosh, you know, language is, is the means in which we can connect with other human beings and convey our, our thoughts and our feelings and our perspectives. It's a really powerful tool. I have a four-month-old and, you know, she's, she's expressing herself without words right now. Um, and, you're, and you're getting the point, but you just don't get the nuance. And so I think language is one of those things that every word has its own meaning. And so many words have close to the same meaning, except they can convey a totally different thing. I remember when I was, when I was in high school, my parents used to like to have us prepare to come to the, uh, to come to the table with a conversation topic. And one of the things that I used to like to do is 
is come with some different words that we could talk about at the at the table to say what's the difference between. Um, so I would say things like, what's the difference between a nerd, a geek, a dork, a dweeb, and a loser? They're all sort of the same thing, but yet they co- totally, in your mind's eye, when you think about each one, it's a totally different person or set of traits and behaviors. So I've always been fascinated by that. So I think language is just our means of conveying what's in our, you know, what's in our mind to another person. And the other part of this that fascinates me is if you think about that list that you just um, reeled off, um, each one of them changes how we think about this individual. Totally. And sort of this mantra that's been in my head for decades that I'm dying to talk to you about is a demarcation point in language creates a demarcation point in thinking, which creates a demarcation Mm. point in action. And a simple example in my mind for that is when I was a kid, the people who lived on the streets were generally referred to as winos and bums. And of course, you don't drive by somebody living on the street today and say, oh, look at the bum. Although, well, maybe some people do, but most people don't right. anymore, right? Because yeah. today we call them homeless people. Right. And that change in language changes thinking, which ultimately ends up changing uh, social beliefs and norms and potentially uh, um, laws and governance approaches and it, ch- it can change a lot of things right mm-hmm. so that change in language you know is it is it a death tax <laughs> right yeah that's or right is it, is <laughs> it a state tax or is it a, i don't know what, what what's the nice version of what are they what's the bullshit they try to sell us that it's <laughs> <laughs> well the state tax is what people talk about it was shifted to death tax to try and get people to see you know a state tax sounds like it's people on the hill that are wealthy and they can afford it. So why would you be outraged that people are getting an estate tax? But if you call it a death tax, that seems unfair. You're being taxed for dying. Everybody has to die. Um, And so it was supposed to uh, change the conversation. And yeah, that happens with language all the time. (laughs) And think about what used cars are now pre-owned vehicles. (laughs) Yes. And this is what you folks get paid to do, to dream up things like pre-owned vehicles. That's right. And the smallest change in language can have a huge impact. So you just talked about the estate tax, death tax. There's the example of global warming to climate change. But it happens in marketing all the time, and we might not realize it. We just talked about that one difference between used cars and pre-owned vehicles. Um, You know, if you we worked with a bank a number of years ago when when they were being um, attacked or um, criticized and maybe rightly so for some lending practices that they had and some other things they felt like people didn't understand what they were signing up for. So they wanted to have a commitment to transparency. Um, but what does that even mean when you talk about transparency? It's like, yes, I, I would say a survey, I want my bank to be more transparent. Um, but if we could somehow help them reshape how people thought the, the mortgage process was or their credit card statements were and say, you know what, for every one of our 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 loan um, documents, we're going to have a one-page summary where you're going to understand exactly what it is that you're getting. And we're going to call that a clarity commitment, a one-page document, clarity commitment. It's our commitment to you that you're going to understand exactly what you're getting yourself into. Something like that, rather than saying we're, we're transparent, we have transparent banking process, you know, that, that doesn't really mean anything. But when you change the language, you say something like clarity commitment, and suddenly you're onto something. 
And uh, that's why it's hard to be against something called the Patriot Act. <laughs> exactly right. You know, and all of these things have something in common. So when, when we're communicating, we often have in our mind exactly what it is that I want to say. And I am saying it and I believe it. I believe in my product. I believe in my company. I believe in my issue. I believe in my candidate. And I, put, I want to put messaging out there. And when I'm not heard, I can get really frustrated. And so my instinct is going to be to speak louder, to share more facts, to try and really just get my point across. And often what happens when it happens, is you, you turn people off and you end up in a really bad spiral. Um, when instead what you need to do is, is not speak louder, but speak smarter. And the way to speak smarter is by slowing down and really saying, you know what, this isn't about what I want to say. This is about what they need to hear. So let me start thinking about my target audience. Let me really start connecting with them and understanding them and, um, and, and getting curious about who they are and really trying to like them. Um, it used to be the job as marketers, we would fall in love with our target audience. I can remember when I first started in marketing um, a long time ago, I'm not going to say how many years ago, we used to really spend time thinking, what kind of coffee do they drink in the morning? We wouldn't judge it. It wasn't like, oh, they like that kind of coffee? Because now every every choice you make is a statement about yourself. But back then it was, they, they brew their own coffee and they want to watch the Today Show and this is who they are. And I really want to get to know them and like them so I can build for them. We don't do that anymore. And when you do that, when you really spend the time and a practice that I call active empathy and active empathy, um, it's, it's not a new concept, but basically it's about understanding your target audience, their, their beliefs, their values, and their behaviors. Once you can really get into that and understand who they are behind the curtain, um, then you can start communicating to their worldview and make these kinds of shifts in language that are going to communicate to them. And this isn't about trying to, you know, persuade in a negative or nefarious way. This is about really trying to connect and get your point across. Like when you have a good story to tell, you should tell it in the best way and you shouldn't be afraid to do that. But it starts with the other, not with yourself. And that's a big mistake that I see a lot of my clients and a lot of people make. And you can see it in the political world all the time. Like Rob Reiner just stepped in it yesterday. I saw <laughs> that, that on if you want to. Yeah. Yeah, that was... Um, that was unfortunate reaction to, what to what's happened, I think. Remind me, what did he do? So what Rob Reiner did is, is you know, we're right in the middle of Donald Trump doing a, a number of tweets that we can, um, we can discuss whether or not they're racist, but he just attacked Elijah Cummings and is being attacked now as being a racist himself. And, you know, that, that um, is certainly warranted, I think, to, to call him that. But Rob Reiner then said, if you support Donald Trump. That? Cummings or Trump? Trump, Trump. <laughs> call Trump a racist. I think, clear. you know, if you want to go Trump at if, calling Cummings a racist, he is now calling so Cummings a racist. And what Rob, racist. everybody's calling everybody a racist. But what, what Rob I, Reiner did, you know what it is? I love it. It's just, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's so juvenile. It's, it's fucking, I know you are, but what am I? That's where we're uh, at in our country. I know you are, but you know what that, am I? Are, are you kidding me? This is the presidential uh, Washington DC version. <laughs> I know. I know. And it's so frustrating to watch as somebody who um, who studies language and behavior for a living because what Donald Trump has just done, right? He he launched an attack against um, against Elijah Cummings, and now um, and what he was trying to do in so doing, whether it was racist or not, was trying to say, look at the Democrats are the party of failed urban centers, right? I mean that's ostensibly what he lobbed out there and what his supporters are seeing. The reaction that people are having is he's a racist. 
Okay, now that's fine. But if you want to change the behaviors, if you want to win over Trump supporters, if you want to beat Donald Trump, don't start calling his supporters racist. And that's what Rob Reiner did. He said, if you know the president is racist and if you support him, you're not just supporting and enabling a racist, you yourself are a racist. So now we're in this name calling. We're going back and forth. We're emotional. And it's all about self going after the other person. No one's going to win here. Republicans are now going to dig themselves in even harder. I mean, there's a lot of behavioral economics that is going on at work that says you're not going to change your mind when you're called a racist. You're going to dig in and say, no, I'm not. And things are just going to get worse. What if instead Rob Reiner said, you know what, that that kind of behavior, that's unpresidential. That's un-American. You know what's American is supporting each other and supporting, you know, you know, supporting our cities. I stand with Baltimore, grab a, you know, grab a beer and a crab cake and crab cake challenge or something like that. You might get attention, but you're not going to add fuel to the fire and you're not going to make things worse and more tribal. So all of this needs to start with taking the perspective of saying, I need to understand who it is that I'm trying to persuade. If you're trying to persuade Trump voters not to support Trump, if you're trying to you know, persuade people who are on the fence and aren't sure what to believe, you're not going to do that by attacking them and calling them racist. You're going to do that by reaching over and saying, what is it about this guy that has you supporting him? And how can I move you over to my side? So fascinating, Lee, that you say that because I've read and heard uh, experts describe Martin Luther King Jr. along these lines in that, uh, and I'm no expert, so I'm parroting things I've heard. That mm-hmm. One of the, the extraordinary things about him and what he did was he was not having an us versus them conversation. He was mm-hmm. trying to speak to the, the greater human in all of us. He was talking about core values and beliefs for all of us. It wasn't, you know, black people against white people or Christians against non- or whatever distinctions you might have associated him with, right? Yep. Um, he was not doing that. He was trying to speak to the greater human being in all of us and in, in a set of core values and ideas that, uh, you know, universally sound like things that we would all want for everybody, right? And so he was doing the opposite. And so it's fascinating exactly right. to hear you say that, that, um, and look, let's assume Donald Trump has good intentions and let's assume that Rob Reiner has good intentions. Mm-hmm. And in both cases, in this example, by going to um, a different place uh, rather than uh, the the one you described, the one I think I uh, think that Martin Luther King Jr. was trying to get to, they just get everybody's back up and make them fight as opposed to trying to bring us together. Totally. And I think, you know, whoever is going to win in, in 2020 is going to have to try and, and do some of that. I mean, if you want to beat... Trump at his own game, or if you want to beat Trump in general, if you want to bring the country back together, it's not going to be by trying to take him down. It's going to be trying to rise us all up. And I think just doing exactly what you're describing is what are the values that we can all hold to here? You know, we have more in common than we have, you know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that we are, you know, we're almost at war with each other between Republicans and Democrats when in fact, for the most part, we're not all that different. And, um, well, it wouldn't be is, so hard even, to bring us together. I don't even know why you, like, I don't have part of my identity called party. Right. right? So Most I, people don't. I'm an immigrant to this country. 
I love the United States of America. I've been able to have a life here that has been an extraordinary gift. I feel grateful for that. And um, I think that to your point, if you want to pick one of the hot topics, let's just pick border security or immigration. Right. What do we um, almost all of us agree on? Well, A, we want to have a humane policy to refugees uh, and migrants who show up on our doorstep. Now, I don't know what that means. I'm not an expert in that shit, but I want to be able to look, look at myself and fellow Americans and say, we're doing humane things there. Okay? We're trying to do mm-hmm. good things there. And, and so that's point A. Point B, I think most of us agree that we want borders and we want control over who gets to stay here and who doesn't. Because if you just open it up, who the fuck knows what's going to happen and a lot of bad shit could happen, right? So we want some controls, right? I think most Americans would agree to that. I think most Americans would agree that this country was and is built by immigrants because unless you're a Native American, you're a freaking immigrant, right? Um, and, and, and so forth. So I think there's a set of things that at a 30,000 foot view, we can all agree on. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how you implement those things. Maybe we disagree on some of the details. But to your point, what I don't understand is, can't we back down and just at least agree at a high level, this is what we believe about our borders and immigration? And, and, then, and, then, and then go off and argue the details. But are we really that far off on what we think we should have with our immigration policy? No, we're not. And you wouldn't know that based on the way the politicians are going on each other and the way the media is covering it. Um, you would think that one party is right and one party is wrong and one party is humanitarian and one party is evil. And, you know, it's one per, you know, or if you, depending on your worldview, you're going to look at one and say it's totally lawless and you don't care about America. But it's just, it's a mess. And the truth of the matter is most Americans believe what, exactly what you said. And the person who can come in and help us heal in some ways and see the broader perspective is the person that I think um, could really you know, could win. Um, but it's going to take an act of real empathy and looking at Americans as, as people, as, as who they are and speaking to their truth and really inspiring them um, and lifting them up. And we've seen that happen before. Um, you know, if you think about how Barack Obama, whether you like him or not, I don't think anybody can dispute that when he was running for president in 2008, that he was an orator like none other. He had a message. He lifted us up. He made us believe in the best of America. And he was able to flip people from, you know, who had voted Republican for a long time to become Democrats because he was able to do that. He was able to reach across and talk about ideals that we could all hold dear. He talked so much about hope. He talked about change we can believe in. It was all, I mean, it was, it lacked a lot of detail, but we all knew there was something great there. And if you just, you know, taking politics out of it and just looking at the message, just looking at how he communicated, he did a lot of exactly what you're describing Martin Luther King did too. It was, it's, there was just something um, really beautiful about it. Well, it's interesting. This isn't a universal truth, but it's an, it's a fascinating thing to look at, which is um, many of the people who make the biggest difference make the biggest difference, not just because they're legendary at the thing it is they do, but they're legendary about communicating, right? So behind me is a picture of Muhammad Ali. Is he the greatest Mm -hmm. technical boxer ever? A lot of people might argue that, but there's Mm -hmm. nobody who doesn't say Muhammad Ali is the greatest, (laughs) right? (laughs) 
And Muhammad totally. Ali was an entertainer. Muhammad Ali was a civil rights activist. I mean, he took stands. He was outrageous. You know, he, he, he was a whole new category of entertainer and civil activist athlete. We'd never seen anything like that. You know, if you drew the Venn diagram, right? Legendary athlete, uh, comedian, uh, uh, civil rights activist. That's yeah, never I been know. done before, right? Um, and, and, totally. And, and just to put the other, you know, um, fine point on it, and I'm not a political scientist, but I think the last Republican president who was as beloved as Obama was by the left was probably Reagan. And of Absolutely. course, and of course, you can say whatever you want about his skills as a politician or, or uh, um, you know, a lawmaker or a leader. Uh, there's lots to be said there, but there's no question. Legendary communicator. Absolutely. I mean, he was, he had it in spades, what I'm talking about. I mean, he had empathy for the people that he used to, you know, connect with. He's known for, you know, I, I was talking once to one of his advisors um, who would say that he could not survive as president without being connected with his voters. So when he was out there, he used to have people in, um, in hotel rooms, not in hotel rooms, but in like ballrooms and hotels that he would just get together and engage with voters so he could see what they were all about. Once he got into the White House, he really struggled because it was so hard for him to be able to have those kind of connections. But he still arranged to meet with people where they were and understand what was so important. And so you felt that when he communicated his whole idea of mourning with America. When he talked about policies, it was real. He was the first president to bring in those stories in the State of the Union address. He would say, you know, I met this person on the road and you believed it. Right. Because now it seems like a, a, a little bit of a stunt. But then that was a real authentic, genuine way of telling these stories that connected us all it was so human. And then, you know, after that, we had Bill Clinton and Bill Clinton was able to do very similar things. The man from Hope who would feel your pain. He really had that empathy thing, too, where he understood who he was talking to and didn't make it all about himself. He made it about all of us. And that is, you know, something really to learn from. It's also something when brands do it well, it can be so beautiful. If you think about Nike doing what they did with Just Do It, that is something that's so similar. It's not really about Nike as a brand. It's about what we can do. We can all be, you know, achieve things. We can do it. We can be the, you know, the inner athlete in all of us. Like, are their sneakers really better than anybody else's for all these years? I think they had something about that too, that they inspired dreams in folks. And so brands do it too. Politicians who do it well win. Um, and I, you know, I think when you see it, you know it, you feel it. Hmm. So how would you define Lee? If I, let's say I was a CEO or a CMO and I came to you and I said, Hey Lee, um, we want to get, we want to practice what you call active empathy. Mm. What would you tell me about that? So, um, you know, I think that I, I break it down into three, three parts in, um, in the book. And the first part, um, I talk about how you have to understand somebody's uh, behaviors, their beliefs and their values. So why do they do what they do? Why do they think what they think? <clears throat> and why do they believe what they believe? So, I think when you look at um, values, right, I want to break down and say, what is the value that you're talking about? So if you are a company um, and you're trying to craft a crisis response, for example, and let's say you've been accused of, um, what have you been accused of if you're a company? You've been Here, accused I'll give you of, one. Stock option okay. backdating. Oh. Ha happened to me. 
<laughs> okay. Well, so, I think you need to understand. Tell me what you think we should have done, and I'll tell you what we did. We'll see how it lines up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think but you need I'll to understand. You, the day the SEC investigators show up in your office to take your laptop from you is a fascinating day. <laughs> oh, gosh. I can only imagine the fear. Um, uh, actually, you know, I didn't have any fear. Because no. I knew I personally didn't do shit. I, I was fearful for what was going to happen to the company. But the interesting, this is a side note, of course, but uh, yeah, the yeah. interesting thing about that is even in a situation like that, it never even occurred to me I was personally in trouble because I knew what I had done and did. And I knew what I did know and didn't know. And uh, luckily also for me as a CMO, nobody expected I was involved with the nose picky nitty gritty of how you account for stock options. Um, uh, so, you know, that also helps. But the interesting thing, um, I wasn't, I wasn't personally nervous because I knew I was, mm. I was very focused on the company dying and going down and what our competitors were trying to do to us. And in this case, NASDAQ threatening to delist us, which they ultimately did. And, you know, I was, I, I was, I cared deeply about the company and our customers and our people. We had an amazing people. And so I was, I was on that, but I could be a hundred percent on that. Cause I, I knew that I, you know, I had done nothing wrong. And so, yeah, you can mirror my laptop all you want and go through every email I've ever sent. Have at it. Mm. This it's, it's so interesting to me to, to try. And when, when, when you think about a company that's trying to craft a, a response in a crisis and you think about what it's like for all you folks who are sitting in the room, like how do you behave rationally when all of this is happening? Because you might not be afraid for yourself, but how are you not afraid for your company or even your financial future or your families or whatever else is all on your stock, mind? And you're thinking about the stock went all from of these 47 things. to 22 in a day. Oh my gosh. And crushed then, my you know, net your worth and crushed the net worth of, you know, hundreds of other people. You just can't imagine what all is going through. And then you still have to somehow continue on and do your job. Um, so, what I would tell a client in your situation is, okay, it's okay to freak out for all of the reasons you're describing, um, but let's try and understand a few things about what your target audience is thinking about. So who are you trying to convince right now that you're, that you're okay? Is it your shareholders? Is it your customers? Um, and what are they afraid of right now? And what value have you just betrayed in them? So Jonathan Haidt, he's a and Just to amazing answer your question, we put our people on that hierarchy first, right? Yep. Because we okay. said we need to... A, be a thousand percent as accurate and as clear and as transparent and tell our people what's up, where we're at, what happened, what's going on, uh, and what we're doing about it to the best of our knowledge at this moment in time at a fairly high level of detail. Because in situations like this, there's the headline bullets you want to know, of course, but the more detail you give, the more rigorous you're being with yourself. And you're, re, you're, you're taking in what well, you'll tell me, but in my opinion, you're taking the first step to rebuilding trust, which is, I'm going to tell you exactly what's up, all the warts, mm -hmm. all of it. Yep. So it sounds like you did a lot right, right? But I, if I were to come in, I would try and, and break it down a little bit further. So who you're trying to talk to. So now we've got your employees. I want to understand what they're concerned about right now. So what Every time something like this happens, there's some kind of a moral value at play. The moral value at play, Jonathan Haidt would drive, he has a number of categories about 
everything that you do falls into different moral values. So if you think about this, is it fairness? Is it liberty? Is it, um, and he lists them out. So we try to go through. And I think when you're looking at something that's legal like this, it's often about, um, it's often about greed. It's a big concern. Um, it's often about the, this argument about fairness, um, that companies are unfair, that they are taking for themselves. They're not treating the little guy the right way. So you need to understand which moral value, and I'd walk you through which those are. And I think in this case, it's probably fair to say that you're looking at something along those lines. Um, and so you need to understand what values at play. Then you want to understand their beliefs. Did they trust you? Is there something, you know, um, what do they feel about you today and what might they be thinking and what are they going to do as a result of it? So um, we know what they might be thinking about you because you're probably thinking the same thing yourself. And then what are they going to do? We're probably afraid that they're going to leave, that they're going to talk to the media, that they're going to spread bad stuff, that they're going to be scared, that they're going to make things worse, right? So once we understand all that, we need to stop it and acknowledge their reality. So the first step is to acknowledge it. So this happened, right? You might be afraid. You might be wondering about your management team. You might be wondering about our commitment to you. Let's, let's just set the record straight. You're right to feel all of these things, but here's what I'm here to tell you is happening, right? And you just express the whole thing. And then you're really clear about your one thing you want them to take away from all this, that they can trust you and depend on you to get through this in the right way. Things might have gone wrong, but we're going to do right by you now. And then you want to talk about the actions that you're taking. So when you're talking about the details that you wanted to get into, everybody wants to know that there's actions. So in your case, I'm sure there are a lot of actions that are going on. Sometimes there's not actions, but you're returning back to some core set of values. Sometimes you're going to say, you know what? I think we need to listen to really understand what you're so afraid about. So I'm going to make listening, listening an action. But what's really important in these kinds of moments is that you take the time to list those actions and be intentional about them, even if it's about revisiting. So um, that's what I would do is I really spend some time going through their, 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 you know, their beliefs and behaviors. I'd address their concerns. I'd have one thing that they want to take away and I'd list through the actions they're going to take. And then I'd want to have an open dialogue with them going forward. It's so funny you say that because I was just about to ask you uh, in the beginning and actually throughout, whenever there was any kind of meaningful communication, there was Q&A associated with it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that we did, I mean, just to put a fine point on it, so the, this, um, the whole thing came to a head. It started in the spring, but it, the whole thing blew up in, on no, November 11th when we announced that. Uh, so, so there was an external inquiry from um, uh, uh, the Federal Trade Commission, right? And, um, mm-hmm. or excuse me, yeah. Who oversees uh, Wall Street? FTC. Yeah, FTC. FTC, yeah. Um, and, and that then triggered an internal investigation. As a result of the findings of the internal investigation, so the internal investigation sort of wanting to get ahead of the government, firing CEO, CFO, and general counsel on the same day. Bam, gone, right? Mm-hmm. And so now you got to get on the phone and communicate to everybody why we're not dead, right? <laughs> Right. And, and what happened and all that stuff. And then what we did, so that was on November 11th. We were on a Q4, calendar Q4, like a lot of tech companies. And we took all the deals above a certain size. I think it was maybe a million or might've been 750, whatever it was. And we divvied them up amongst the top six or 10 people in the company. We said, we're going to all get to the, all these customers. And we took all of our offices around the world. And one of us is going to get to all of those offices 
in concert with going to all of these prospects and customers. And we are going to lock this puppy down, right? And we had, um, to your point on communicating the message, we created this thing we called the message house. What was the top line message? What were the three supporting pillars? What were all the details underneath those three supporting pillars? And Mm -hmm. it didn't matter whether we're talking to a customer, prospect, uh, investor, competitor, of course, the media, bam, we lived off that message house. So smart. I mean, I think consistency of message in um, in a crisis like that, or really in anything right now, is so important. You know, so many people spend so much time trying to segment their messaging too. Like, we're going to tell our employees one set of things. We're going to tell our customers another. We're going to tell somebody else. You know, the media is another. The influencer is going to get a different message. I think that's such a dangerous thing to do in this day and age because every message that you put out there now could be used in any context, right? Like if you have a if you have an employee memo that's going out that's going to give details you don't want to get to the media, you're in big trouble. If you're telling the media a different story than you're telling your customers, big problem. Because I think one of the worst things that you can do to kill trust the, the fastest is being consistent. Inconsistency can kill you faster than anything. So having that kind of a message house as you describe it is is the absolute right thing to do especially when you're being under, you know, when you're under attack, because you have to be disciplined, if anything else. The other things that we did, Lee, that uh, I'd love to sort of kick around a little with you is um, Mm -hmm. um, radical transparency. So just tell them everything you know. This is where we're at with the investigation. This is, to the best of our knowledge, what we did wrong and why it was a problem. By the way, um, based on external reports, you know, 47 other tech companies have been found to do exactly the same thing. And it was a common practice in the Valley, but we did it. We didn't understand how bad it was that we were doing it. And we weren't, you know, there was a little bit of it and it wasn't just us. You know, so, but whatever it was, we tried to take as much spin out of it as possible and just be factual. And then the other thing we tried to um, uh, sort of get people to understand was, uh, we were going to make it right. And as a result of this situation, we were in an epic battle for our life. And we mm. were to be triumphant. And so it quickly turned into this epic battle to save the company. Yep. And the other piece of this, and then I'll kind of get your reaction, is what I would call radical trust. We radically trusted our people to do the right things, to stay with us, to work hard, to go for it. We, we, we radically trusted our customers that they'd keep buying, that they'd support us, and they did show up. Many of them increased the sizes of their orders that quarter to make sure we continue to do well as a publicly traded company through this mess. And we delivered the biggest quarter in the history of the company, that Q4. Wow. That's an amazing story for so many reasons. A, it's like a case study in what you do, I think. Um, and the results speak for it, right? But I think that, that the thing that's interesting, um, you talk about your radical transparency. I think there's two things that companies do in these situations. One um, is they can be, we're going to just communicate all the facts, all of the facts so that you, you can feel better, right? And facts alone, we tell our clients all the time, facts alone don't set you free. We don't think in facts. We don't live by facts. So you can't just put facts out there without having an emotional connection or some broader theme. So when you're talking about your radical transparency, I was like waiting for the next thing. But then you say what we did is we talked about how we were going to make it right. Above all else, we were going to set the course right. 
you had an emotional hook there. So everything else that you're doing under it, all those facts lived under this idea that you're going to make it right. So then you're going to root for you. Those facts are going to become something that's living and breathing and, um, and that you're going to care about. But people, if you, if you have facts without that inspiring thought, it can just be lost. And the other thing that I really like that you're talking about is the radical trust. It's about empowering your people to really feel that they're going to be part of this, empowering your customers to be part of the whole thing. That's something that's so, so important because oftentimes when I talk about there's two things that companies do, one is that listing of facts. The other is getting really, really guarded. And when people are really, really guarded and too protective, they're probably relying too much on their lawyers alone because that's what lawyers are going to tell you to do when you're in crisis is don't communicate keep it close, only talk to three people and just get through it, get your heads down. When you don't include others, when you don't take those risks and put it out there, your message is never going to get through. You've got to have everybody feel like they're part of the team. Um, you've got to get everybody together. And so when you see successful companies in their kind of situation, it's doing all the things you're describing. When you see companies who are failing through crisis, it's usually facts alone, guarded, not giving out enough information, um, and not really getting enough people talking because it feels like you're failing just the same spokesperson, the same three people in the room. Employees are disengaged. Customers aren't sure what's going on. Um, and that's when, you know, that's when crisis can take over and kill a company. Amen. Hallelujah, sister. <laughs> and I don't understand it. You know, it's like the truth will set you free. Uh, you've got to deal with what it is, right? There's no amount of whipped cream on dog shit that's going to make the dog shit taste better, right? And so, yeah, like enough. Just say this. It, this is dog shit, right? Um, the other aha around the radical trust. I know it might sound altruistic. I don't know that it really was Lee, because like, what other choice do you have, right? Like, other people make you successful. This notion that y- we make ourselves successful is insane, right? I like totally. to play guitar. Well, the difference between me and Bruce Springsteen is one thing, fans, right? <laughs> there's, there's maybe 16 people that like to hear me make a noise on a guitar. And there's probably, you know, 160 million who like to him, hear him make a noise on a guitar. Other than that, we're two guys making a noise on a guitar. And so my point is the obvious one, which is other people make us successful. And when you're in the shitter, there's just no way you can save a billion dollar company with, you know, 12 people. (laughs) You just can't do it. And so, like, I just don't know uh, any other choice. And in that context, and there's probably some line that this is not true of, but in general, over communicate. If you look like you're hiding, then you're fucking hiding. Probably. And it's not always, you know, the thing that I see with our clients is it's not always that they are actually hiding. They've been given advice that says, you've got to get your trust advisors in a room and it's just the five of you, just the six of you, and that's it. And then we'll figure it out and then we'll launch it, you know, in three months when it's all fixed. And you look at these big companies who do stuff like that. I mean, I don't, I don't know what's going on going right now, but in the beginning, it's like, how long does it take them to get it right? Like, you're... The, they could have done something so different than they did. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger because they were just guarding all the information, waiting till they had every last detail before they would ever say anything. And you're waiting for days well, and people are afraid about flying. Their CEO was on the phone to the president saying, we got this. Don't ground us. All right. Yeah. Well, fair enough. <laughs> like what? What? You're a duplicitous evil fuck when you do that. 
I mean, that's yeah. just true. I, I want the CEO of Boeing to be incredible and to say, hey, we're grounding all these planes. Put them down until we get this figured out. The minute they think this is a big problem. Right. Why is that hard? Well, I mean, the narrative that we would tell ourselves and the value he's betraying, right, is putting profits before people. Like, because, right, the only story that you could tell yourself now, the only story that we can create in our you know, mind's eye is this guy must have been so afraid that if he grounded all the planes, he was going to lose a boatload of money because that was the right thing to do. And so he's just now by doing what he did, he's made everything 10 to 100 times worse. I don't know what the impact on their stock price is, but it's, it's sure, you know, I'm sure it was not good in those days because he made some really big mistakes. Well, and we all remember, of course, the Tylenol crisis and how they handled it. And, you know, of course, it was the opposite of that. We had the yeah. same thing here on the West Coast years ago with Odwalla juice, with their non-pasteurized juice, right? And the minute it blew up in their face, and I think people died, if I remember right, they just shut the whole thing down and changed their practices rapidly. You know, and so we have these incredible examples of companies that get right on it. And, you know, the thing that's interesting about what we wanted Boeing to do and what Adwala did there in that example did, right, is they, we were looking for a symbolic gesture to show, I get it. So if Boeing had rounded all the planes immediately, Adwala closed their stores until they got the juice right. Howard Schultz, when he came back to Starbucks, if you think about what he did when he first came back after things had gone rogue and people were all complaining the coffee wasn't good, he shut the doors for the afternoon and said, every brisk is going to learn to make a good cup of coffee because that's what we are about. Those symbolic gestures, those moments are really, really critical in creating a new narrative. And when you're, when you're trying to create a new day for yourself, whether it's about a crisis or just a turnaround situation, symbolic gestures go a long, long way. Yeah, very, very, very powerful. So let's go back to, I want to go back to this notion of active empathy. We sort of mm-hmm. talked about it in the context of, you know, bad shit going on in the company. <laughs> Let, let's say uh, I'm trying to design a new category and become the, the category queen or king, the dominant brand in that category. And I want to meaningfully change the way the world thinks about uh, something, a problem and therefore a solution. What are the things that I can do, uh, uh, given I want to persuade in that way, I want to change behavior, I want to, I want to be the yeah. rule setter, I want to be the game creator, I don't want to play somebody else's game. And so in that context, how would I think about trying to design a category and becoming the leading brand in that category? You know, it's, it's interesting, um, when we're with companies who are trying to do that, create a new category or create a new thing. Um, and you talk to them about what they want to be like. A lot of them will say they want to be like Apple um, in that they want to be innovative and they want to go out there and make a big splash and talk about it in that way because they're so excited about it. Um, and that instinct is also often the wrong one because when we're making big changes in our behaviors, um, it can often be scary. So I'll give you a couple examples. We were working with a medical device company who was launching a new type of um, valve, heart valve. And they wanted to go out there and talk about this crazy innovation and how amazing it was and how transformative it was going to be. And it was all of those things. But when they talked to heart surgeons about it, the heart surgeons didn't want it, even though it was better than what options they had. So they tried all these different ways of talking about it. And it was just trying to rely on the science, just talking about how innovative it was. And they wanted to be like Apple, right? And heart surgeons, one after the other, was like, nope, I'm fine with what I've got. If it's, you know, 
if the person's younger, I'm going to do a mechanical valve because it'll last for longer. If they're older, I'm going to do this kind of a valve because of this and trade-offs, it's fine. I'll deal with it. Um, and what we found out when we talked to these surgeons was that the reason that they were feeling this way is putting a new heart valve in somebody's a high stakes practice. And it's pretty scary to do with something that's new. You don't necessarily want innovation in somebody's heart. So if we changed the language and talked about how it was a breakthrough, right? A breakthrough that was different than innovation because breakthrough penicillin is still a breakthrough drug all these years later. So it, it was a breakthrough in medical technology in advance. When you started changing the language and getting to the heads of reassuring the, the heart surgeons about what this was all about, why it was important and what they could expect out of it and temper expectations so that they felt like it was safe, then they were more comfortable, right? So it starts when you're trying to get in a new category, when you're trying to change or disrupt a category too, you better understand what's at stake for the people that you're talking to and get in their head so that you can reassure them so they're going to feel that this is a positive disruption. Sometimes disruption is just plain fun and that, you know, it, we've been waiting for it. And you think like, oh, my gosh, why didn't I think of that? And then you can have more fun with it. But oftentimes we're asking somebody to do something that's a little bit scary because most change is a little bit scary for us. Even even like the most basic thing, like changing your cell phone plan or I want to get rid of this bank and go to that bank. There's a hassle around it. So you need to understand what's at stake for the folks so that you can craft, you know, so you can craft something around it. Mm, I love that. What's at stake. Uh, the other thing I couldn't help notice in the example that you just gave, it sounded like in in the first rev, they were mostly having a product discussion. Yes. And in the second rev, they were having a discussion around topics, ideas, problems that mattered to physicians. Totally right. Exactly right. You're getting in exactly that. That's right. They're going in and talking, instead of just talking about the medical device, now they're talking about the challenges that the, the doctors are, are, are after. And so the doctors always had to have a trade-off conversation. They were tired of having a trade-off conversation with their patients between this and that. So instead, imagine they could have a conversation about a heart valve with no trade-offs. Yes. Like that I, to them goes right into the bigger problem. And it's exactly right. You're going into the mind and the problem that they're actually solving for. And so. Um, you know, play with me a little bit on this one, Lee. Um, the the framing of the conversation mm. is more important than the conversation or the context of the dialogue is the most important part of the dialogue. Totally. It's totally right. You've got to like dig in, get under like sort of the, the question is like, and why does it matter? And why you can do like that five whys exercise, yes. you know, I'm giving you this new product. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Why does so you get underneath it until you get to the place that you're going to land on? Like, oh, now I'm solving a problem for them. Now I'm in a place that's going to make their life marked, you know, markedly better. Um, and often we start at the first one. You know, we worked with um, we worked with a technology company years ago um, who had a failed computer software program that we all used. And they wanted to go out and talk about the great new system that was going to go on all of our computers and make our lives so much better. It was so innovative and it was so awesome. And they had, you know, all of these developers work for three years to fix every bug that was on it, make it all better. And they wanted to go out and talk about this amazing stuff. And all we wanted to know was that it was going to work. Like, I just wanted to know 
when I turned on my computer in the morning and I started typing a document that I was going to use for work, that it, it wasn't going to crash my system, that I wasn't going to lose my work, that it was actually going to work this time. And that wasn't exciting for the company that we we're working with. They were like, oh, come on. We spent all this money and all this fun stuff. And there's this crazy <laughs> stuff you can do now. And you're like, no, 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 I don't give a hoot. I want it to work. And so that's, we had to help them get to the places like, no, you've got to meet your customer where they are. What is their problem? What are you solving for? How are you going to make their life better? It's by making it work. Yeah. I love what you just said. You have to meet your customer where they are. One of my favorite examples of languaging and category creation and design is Henry Ford, horseless mm. carriage. <laughs> so yeah. he meets them at the context with the language they understand. And then he adds this provocative thing. And actually recently I, I, I posted this on LinkedIn. I forget what the product was called now, but it was another new category venture back company who was describing their new carbodingulator as a X-less carbodingulator. I forget which cat, what it was. And the, the comment that I made is pay attention to what things are called and notice in the First stages of category creation and design, often the languaging is describing what it's not. And so if you look at this device that Amen. you and I carry around today, in the beginning, it was called a wireless phone. Right. And today it's called a smart phone. And who knows what it'll be okay. called in five or 10 years. My guess is the word phone might actually go away, right? I don't know what mm -hmm. it'll be called. but um, it's, it's, so it's this, this notion that you're talking about with, around meeting them where they are. If you were teaching me how to meet people where they are with languaging while at the same time taking them to a new place, horseless carriage, wireless phone, how would you teach me to think that way such that I could do that, meet them where they are, but at the same time, carry them forward in, in a direction I would like them to go? Oh gosh, that's a good question. You know, I think you've got to think about the barriers that you're removing. Like what problem are you solving for, right? So in the case of mobile phones, you're removing wires. That's amazing. You can now walk around and talk. I mean, who ever thought about that? I mean, when I was younger, that wasn't, you know, you still had the cords. But I, I think that you know, we work with companies who are in this kind of situation all the time. And sometimes you think it has to be a huge advance in order to come up with something that's like, to be the horseless carriage or the wireless phone or the whatever it is. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Sometimes it's really simple. So we're working with a credit card company who's launching a new rewards card. Everybody's dying right now, right? I mean, everybody cannot wait for one more rewards card to come out there. And they couldn't understand why people weren't buying their rewards card because it seemed like a good card for them. But we had to, what we ended up doing with them was saying like, let's look at the footnotes of your competitors' cards. Let's look at... What's different? Because you're not going to win on 1%, 2%, 3% cash back. You need to win on something that you're solving a problem. So we had them test what the footnotes of the competitors were versus theirs to see what made it better. And what we heard from customers who were going through that is with this card, after hearing that, there's no hoops to jump through, no rotating categories, no, um, you know, I get it. I get the same cash back on every single purchase. I know exactly what I'm getting. No hoops, no hoops, no hoops. It came up over and over and over again in just looking at what the barriers were to the cards. And so we ended up calling it, instead of calling it a cash back card, we called it a no hoops rewards card. It's about what you're taking away. 
not a crazy advent, you know, invention. We're not talking about horseless carriages or wireless phones, is, but what we are doing it is, is a pain point. Design. It still is totally. category design. It still is what I would argue niching down. You're now, look, I would agree. It's not horseless carriage. It's not, you know, human beings on the moon and shit. But at the same time, you're carving out a new type of card as a way to, and I'm going to say this word very much on purpose, differentiate yourself such yep. that you are no longer having the race to the bottom. We're better than them. Well, it's 1%, that's 2%. You know, the, one, the argument I love on this one, the best version of why that's a stupid strategy and why what you're describing is a smart strategy is something about Mary, where Stiller <laughs> picks up the hitchhiker, Harlan Williams. Do you remember this scene? Yeah. Seven minute abs, and he says, "Well, I'm going to eight minute abs. I'm going to do seven minute abs." And Stiller says, "Well, what happens when six minute abs comes out?" Right? And this is what every fucking business in the world is doing with their marketing, and it's because they're they're competing on comparison, which ultimately leads to a race to the bottom on features and or prices or both. Right? As opposed to what you're describing, which is saying, "Hey." There's the regular way to do this, but there's this new niche of card called no pain in the ass. <laughs> totally. And you know what? It was the same card that it was right before they changed the name and 68% increase in sales in the first three months just by changing what you call it. It reminds me, there's this old story about, I want to say the company was called Canada Trust. They were a trust company in Canada, duh, where I grew up. And they, like all other banks and trust companies, sold, you know, financial and retirement planning services where, you know, you would meet with an advisor and you would talk about your expenses and how much money you make and when you want to retire and your budget and blah, blah, yada, yada. And they would put together some kind of investment plan that was a diversified portfolio and all the good shit we've all ever heard about. It, right. And for the Canadian equivalent of 401ks, which are called RRSAPs, you know, blah, 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 all the same shit. Right. So one day they launched this campaign lead. They stopped talking about all that what I would argue is product shit. Mm-hmm. And the campaign is Freedom 55. And they show this handsome looking couple holding hands running along the beach and all this stuff about Freedom 55. And, you know, Jim, aren't you glad we, you know, got, got on this when we were younger and we got our, now we have our, you know, whatever. I can't remember the exact, but it was all the campaign that lasted for years was all under this Freedom 55. And so people would call and they'd say, hey, uh, I'd like to talk to you about buying one of those Freedom 55 programs. And they'd say, great, we have that for you. What you need to do is come in and meet with an advisor and talk about your this and your that. And they did it, to your point, they did exactly the same shit. Same shit, different wrapper. And you know what happened to, um, you know, their growth rate and their market share. Yep. And we see it all the time. We... Worked with a company years ago. This this story is an old one now. It's probably ten or twelve years old. But um, and my partner Michael Maslansky writes about this one in his book. But he he worked with companies trying to sell variable annuities. Now, variable annuities are not fun to buy. Nobody's sitting there like, you know what I need today? I need a variable annuity. Like it's uh, it complicated like and if just the name told is terrible. You, you had one, you might be nervous. <laughs> That's right. That's totally right. But um, we worked with this company to help them to reshape how they talked about it. Like, don't talk about offering variable annuities. The product talked about the benefit, what they're going to get. What are they going to get? They're going to get protected growth. Now, this was at a time that the market was volatile. You know, we're thinking about 2007, 2008, where things were bad. What 
wouldn't I love to be able to get growth in the market and protection at the same time? Protected growth. Talk about that. Don't talk about the product variable annuity. And then people say, well, yeah, I want protected growth. Well, here's how. If you invest your money in one of these, then that's how you're going to get it. But it's just the way our minds work and what we want. Like talk to the benefit. Don't talk to the product. Talk to what you're going to get. Talk to the picture. Talk about the outcome. Um, don't necessarily talk about the tool. Um, and I think that's really important as well. It's so interesting we're talking about this. Um, I've long believed, Lee, the company that creates the languaging becomes the category queen or king. And Can here's I quote you on that? <laughs> I'm going to quote you on that. A a absolutely. Uh, quote yourself on it. We could, I don't give a <laughs> shit. But, uh, um, but the interesting thing, the gra a great example of this is if you look at the category creator designer, their language becomes the language of the category and an example we can all relate to. And, and I used to work in San Francisco. I used to work in a building where there was a Pete's coffee. And in general, I like Pete's coffee a lot more than I like Starbucks coffee. And so I would go into Pete's every morning and I would listen to easily a third, maybe more of the people walk in there and say, I would like a double grande latte, please. And every time they did it, the, 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 the person behind the cash would just grit their teeth a little bit, right? I'm like right. They're going to grind their teeth off working here because, of course, they're using language that Starbucks invented. And I would yeah. further assert that Starbucks invented that new language as part of a very deliberate differentiation. And I would assert category design strategy, even if they didn't use those words. They were massively differentiating. And in order to do that, you can't go in and just ask for a coffee. And, and then their language became the language of the category, so much so people walk into other coffee shops and use their languaging. Well, I mean, I think Starbucks didn't just redefine coffee. They redefined coffee as an experience. So it needed its own language, right? It's like, going to get a Starbucks cup of coffee in the middle of the day is no longer about going to get a cup of coffee. It's, it's like the modern day smoke break, right? It's like the, it's an experience. It's your release. It's, there's a whole new language about it. You feel differently about yourself when you came out of it. And so of course you need a new language to describe that. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's gotta be really frustrating for everybody else. Um, and I still am one of those people that goes, I'm like, what do you call a medium? You know, like, yeah, exactly. But, but yeah, that's so the category if I, was, if I was a category designer working on launching a new category and wanted to be the category queen or king, how would you, this is a discussion I've been in so many times, Lee, you know, I've done this mm. about 50 times. And, and so how would you teach me to have a thoughtful discussion around the proactive creation of highly differentiated language that at one hand, on one hand moves people's thinking forward in the way I want, but at the same time to the comment you made earlier meets them where they're at. Yeah. You know, I think that once the company or an executive understands the importance of language, right, it starts to transcend just what is your tagline? What are your three, you know, what are your three pillars? What are the, you know, what are my crisis response message points? It transcends everything so that you realize when you add that one piece of paper to every document and you call it a clarity commitment, you get a reputational lift instead of just adding the one page thing because it's the right thing to do. 
And so what I um, urge my clients to do, and once we're really in with a client and we're starting to do all of these things is you've got to look at your language strategy as a language strategy. It's not just about messaging. You know, it used to be with brand strategy, right? You had a logo. So you go into a brand firm and you get a logo and you come out of it. Now, when you're talking to a brand strategy firm, it's everything, right? It's your colors. It's your mood. It's your smell. There's smell design involved in it. There's music. There's everything around brand design. You're creating a whole smell? experience. There is there is smell design. There's smell yeah, there's smell is that branding. Why, not that this is a place I could go. I haven't been for a who knows long, but who knows how long. <laughs> well, never forget going to um, Abercrombie. Abercrombie. What do they call uh, Abercrombie. Abercrombie and Fitch? Thank yes. you. That place. And as you get near it in the mall, again, not a place I I go to. On a <laughs> basis, but not that there's anything wrong with it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, you, you get within like four stores of that place, and it's already on you. Totally. You know, the lo- the lobby of a Weston, it smells a certain way and you don't even realize it. You no, know, the, like I want to kill myself. I know Subway, they always are pumping out their bread smell. I mean, it's, it's, it's something people do, but that's an aside. People can go in and they can get their own smells, which is a really fascinating thing. I'd love to go through that exercise. But, um, so if you think about brand strategy and how that's grown and evolved, I think that companies need to start thinking about language strategy in the same way. Like what? Does your language, what is your messaging? What do your words convey about you? What do you call your people? Are they employees? Are they team members? How do you talk to your customers? Who are they? Are they shareholders? Are they customers? Are they, you know, are they clients? Um, every piece of language that you use creates a different experience and you want to make sure that you're putting out there the right thing. So what I try to talk about is think, thinking about thinking about, you know, creating not just a, you know, a brand identity, but creating your verbal identity, your language identity, because it's really important how you put yourself and how you engage in all of these different ways. If you're truly trying to create a breakthrough brand. I think you have to be as intentional with your words as you are with everything else. And, you know, it used to be, because I've been doing this for a while now, it used to be that I would wonder, because the goal of my every client about 10 years ago was to create a viral video, right? And I used to wonder like, gosh, what is going to happen in the language are we going to end up being in like a gift, you know, society some days, everybody just going to be trying to create viral videos and is language gone. But what I found now is language has never been more important than it is today because we are communicating in 140 characters or less. We are engaging in ways we had to get our point across faster than we ever have before. People are getting thousands upon thousands of marketing messages every day. We've got a split second to get our point. We don't have time for produced content and long form video and all of these other ways that we can engage. You've got words and they've got to connect and they've got to matter. And so getting that discipline right is more important than it ever has been. And I can't, I mean, I'm so excited to be living in this time because it's like, it's the best for me because I love language, but it, it never has been more important. I don't know how to say this to a gal. If you were a guy, <laughs> what I would say is, is it wrong for one man to love another man? So I don't know. Is it wrong <laughs> for one man to love another woman? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> that was fucking awesome. I'm going to have to yeah. listen to that 10 more times. Um, oh, I, somewhere in the beginning of that, Lee, if I got it right, I was taking notes like a fiend. I think somewhere in the first quarter or so, you said language creates experience. Yes. So I have a thought about that, but before my thought, could you just drill into that one a little bit more for me? 
Yeah. I mean, the, the way I, if I were to describe you, I could describe you a number of different ways right now. I could talk to you as a podcast host, an expert, a number of different things. All of those are going to make you feel differently. And our experience with each other is going to be different. The way I even think about you before I talk to you, the word that I use to describe you is going to change how I'm going to engage with you. And so if you think about the language that you're using to describe your employees, you think about the language used to describe your customers, you think about the language you do to describe your mission, your vision, your product offerings, your, you know, your work day, the things that you're doing, all of those are going to create different experiences just by changing the words you use to describe them. And it's so important to be intentional about those things because you are creating an environment by the words used to describe them. So thank you. That was fucking awesome. Um, <laughs> I'm reminded of something because I, I'm committed to being a student of languaging, the way people use language, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, here's an example of uh, a huge mistake that uh, many, I think, millions of businesses around America, I don't know if they say this outside America, I don't think they do, restaurants. You and I are out, we're having a wonderful meal, we're talking about persuasion and language and categories and brandings, and we're losing our minds having this kind of fun conversation about things we care Mm -hmm. about and so forth, right? And let's say um, we're mostly done with the uh, main course. The server comes over and he says, are you still working on that? I guarantee you, I'm no expert on Italy, but I've been there a bunch of times. I'll bet you my net worth that there is no Italian server who comes up to you and says, are you still working on that? Hell no, they wouldn't. <laughs> right? Now, right. What, how could you say that in a way that you were being attentive? Because maybe they are done with their meal. They're not going to finish the last bit or whatever it is. Or, you know, so you want to be attentive but you also don't want to be a moron. Well, what might we say? We might say, are you still enjoying that? Totally. Is there anything and else I can do for word, you? one word, what happens with that one word? Yeah, everything changes. You're enjoying versus working. It's There's no nice restaurant that you and I want to go to where we feel like we're fucking working on the food. If you're right. working on the food, you know, you work on food when you've had like a day of hard labor. <laughs> so true. But you know what else I think of? I'm, I'm also thinking like the attitude that the waiter has. If they think that, if they think that they're coming over and saying, are you still working on that? That to me sounds like they're waiting for me to be done. Right? Like I feel like that the experience of that server is different when they, if they were to come over and say, are you still enjoying that? Because it, you're still enjoying that, then I, I'm appreciating what you're doing. I want you to be enjoying it, right? You're creating an environment. So even that shift, it creates a different experience both for, the, for us that's having the meal and for the person who's serving us um, in that shift in language. And it, you see that in some of these, like, you know, the fast food chains. Like if you go into Chick-fil-A, the language they use, they greet you, right? And that changes the experience, not just for me as the person who's coming in. It also changes the experience of the employee who probably feels better about their job and more important about their, because they're elevating every experience by just the language they're using to greet the customer. That's a fascinating insight. Of course, it not only changes the experience for the customer, but the employee. I hadn't thought about that part. 
what must be going on for the waiter who asks, who uses enjoy versus working? Totally. And it's like one of those. It changes their work experience. You know, there's this insight or study I read about, and don't quote me exactly on because I can't tell you where it came from. But I know that there was a study that was done when they asked people in the hospital about their job satisfaction. And then they asked them to describe their job. And so there was, um, there were the janitors who described their, their job and what they actually did, cleaned up waste. It was disgusting, it was terrible, and a lot of bad stuff about the job. And they had very low job satisfaction. And then there were people who described their job as, it's my job to create an environment where people can get well. I want to keep the room a place that the, the patients can heal, that they can get better. Um, and when they describe it in those terms, their job satisfaction was off the charts. And that's, again, language. It's the same job. They're both doing the same thing, but they feel totally different about the job because of the language they're using to describe it. Yeah. Which goes back to when we change our language, we change thinking. And when we change thinking, we change behavior and we change attitudes and we change our own feelings. Totally. I love it. Lee, I could talk to you for hours. Um, I do want to be respectful of your time. Anything else you want to touch on? I think that's it. But a lot of this is covered in my book, so I hope you'll buy it. <laughs> um, well, but not thank all you of for it. Writing it, I love what you folks do. I love. I got into this. Is going to sound corny. I kind of got into the history of your firm and some of the political things and Ross Perot and like. Uh, I don't know. I just I was fascinated with the whole arc of the whole thing. Yeah, I would love to talk to you more about it anytime. It's a. I I feel you know when you think about you set out in your journey when you're you know I you know, we've got kids right out of college or we've got some interns here. And I can remember thinking like, is there going to be a job for me that's going to be interesting my whole life? And to think that there's a discipline out there just around messaging, just around language, just about making sure you're having the impact that you want to have. It's so cool. It's just so cool. So there's there's something for everybody out there. Interesting. The other dimension I'm fascinated by this on is you guys pulled the niche down. Hmm. You're not a branding firm. You're not a PR firm. You're not a design agency. You're not a whatever and a whatever and a ha <laughs> you, mm-hmm. you call yourself a language firm. Is that right? That's right. We're a language strategy firm. Is what language call strategy. So uh-huh. you are evangelizing, and you did it with me today, a category of professional service firm in the broad marketing mega category called language strategy. Yes. Right. And that we had to wrestle that one to the ground. You can imagine a bunch of language strategists trying to come up with how you describe yourself. Like, no, are we going to be a research firm, a messaging firm? Oh, yeah, but I, we, we had to. I think the only way for us to, because we are different. We had to describe ourselves differently or else you try to be a little bit different, but in the same category as everybody else, then you're commodity. Amen. Hallelujah, and, sister. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much. Anything else? No, but thanks so much for having me on. I hope I I can continue the conversation with you again soon. You know what? I would love to have you back. And um, this is a fascinating topic. I am nowhere. I will always be fascinated by how language affects uh, business, marketing, category design. And, you know, to your point, our own experience of our own life. Yep, absolutely. And it's it's, it's fun to... uh, as we say in martial arts, move around in the dojo with a master sensei. (laughs) I'm flattered. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you, Lee.
All right. Take care. Well, there she is, Lee Hartley Carter. I sure hope you enjoyed that conversation. And um, now are you thinking about the growth of your business? And because if you want to grow your business, you got to get to know your customers. And that's where my friends at NetSuite come in. NetSuite has a complete offering in the CRM area that allows you to generate a single view of the customer across all channels for complete visibility into online, in-store, and call center transactions and interactions. With NetSuite, you can build rich customer profiles based on behaviors, interactions, and so forth that can be made available across your business to salespeople, marketing, support personnel, and so forth. With NetSuite, you can create targeted segments for highly focused, personalized upsell and cross-sell campaigns and promotions. You can understand your customer's true lifetime value, reduce cost, improve customer satisfaction and retention, all while providing a consistent level of customer service and support across all of your channels, physical and digital. NetSuite is an all-in-one cloud business platform, and they're offering you, as a listener to this podcast, a free one-hour growth review with an expert in your industry. Check out netsuite.com slash different today, because with NetSuite, you'll know your customers like ever, like never before, and when you know your customers, maybe you'll be able to get growing, knowing and growing. Excellent. NetSuite.com slash different. You can also find us on the internet at Lockhead.com, L-O-C-H-H-E-A-D. And uh, while you're there, hit the subscribe button and subscribe to our newsletter, The Difference. Promise we're going to send you some legendary stuff, uh, no junk or crapola, and we'll never sell your name to anybody else. And I also want to tell you about my new marketing podcast uh, on Lockhead.com and everywhere you get legendary uh, podcasts. It's called Lockhead on Marketing. And it's quite different from this uh, this podcast in that uh, most episodes are pretty short, 20 minutes or less. Some are even 10 minutes or less. And uh, they're one topic oriented. And we drill into what are the mindsets and strategies to do le- required to do legendary marketing, how we design and dominate market categories and much more check out lockhead dot uh check out lockhead on marketing at lockhead.com or whenever wherever you get legendary oddcasts all right we would like to thank the amazing new book by our friend and today's guest i really enjoyed reading this book and enjoyed the conversation with lee hartley carter check out persuasion convincing others when facts don't seem to matter My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants want to help you get back some time with the power of a virtual assistant. Check out bottleneck.online today. That's bottleneck.online today. Splunks at splunk.com, S-P-L-U-N-K.com, bringing data to every question, every decision, and every action. Uh, A podcast I love, The Brutal Truth About Sales and Selling. Uh, with my friend and guest most recently on episode number 50, Brian Burns. Check it out, The Brutal Truth About Sales and Selling. And the amazing folks at Habitat for Humanity. Habitat's vision is of a world where everyone has a decent place to live. You can make a giant difference today at Habitat.org. That's Habitat.org. All right, I'd like to remind you that today's oddcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain disturbed. We must warn you that clearly this oddcast gets created in a studio that does contain nuts. We are produced by the legendary Jamie J and Sarah Knox, edited by the incomparable Mike D, show notes by Diane Gervasio. Now remember to teach kids languaging. 
by John's Crazy Socks, practice legendary marketing, only buy free-range pasture-raised eggs, listen to Joan Jett, remember George Carlin was right, and Adam West is the real Batman. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mum and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Marcus Rust, CEO of Roseacre Farms. Sorry, Marky, we just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much. It means the world to me that you hang out with me. Um, Thank you. Stay legendary. And until we hang out again, of course, follow your difference.